This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu for more information. While changing jobs and shifting careers is hardly unusual in today's business world, Russ Palmer is somewhat unique in that he has been the leader of three very different organizations over the past several decades. He was CEO of Touche Ross, now Deloitte and Touche, for 10 years, Dean of the Wharton School for seven years, and now owner, chairman, and CEO of the Palmer Group, a corporate investment firm. Each of these positions required very different skills and the ability to adapt to a unique set of challenges, what Palmer calls a, quote, context-driven approach to leadership, end quote. In his new book, Ultimate Leadership, Winning Execution Strategies for Your Situation, Palmer uses his own experiences and the experiences of others to illustrate how today's leaders can adapt to and succeed in any business environment. Thanks for joining us, Russ. Thank you. Can you explain briefly what you mean by the context-driven approach to leadership? Is this the same thing as having the ability to read and react to a new situation, or is it broader? I think it's broader. Um, Let me say that uh, I have 20 books in my library over there, and and they're all about uh, leadership. And they take the form of either principles of leadership uh, or what some leaders have done. But I don't know of any of them that talk about context, which is uh, how you execute uh, leadership. Principles we know include things like personal integrity of the leader, judgment, serving as a symbol. Uh, but context is, is all about uh, execution. In top-down organizations, the uh, environment is one of do it and do it now. In academic organizations, it's uh, much more uh, collegial. In nonprofits with volunteers, uh, uh, there's a persuasiveness that has to uh, uh, take place uh, all the time. But when you change context, either because you change jobs or you, you change context because the leader now is in a different uh, environment, such as uh, the leader of a top-down organization now has to share a business uh, roundtable uh, with, uh, with his or her uh, peers. There's definitely got to be a, a, a different kind of style in order to be uh, persuasive. Or uh, a business person goes into academia, such as uh, I have done. I think most of the ones that have done that have found it uh, very difficult, and many uh, have uh, failed. So it's a, it's a much broader thing. Context is about execution of leadership in different environments. Can you give us two examples? One, a situation where a leader successfully applied this context-driven approach to a particular situation or organization, and one where he or she quite obviously failed to do this. Well, in my entry into uh, Wharton, the first exposure I had was uh, to the uh, faculty, and uh, they were very apprehensive about... uh, uh, some accountant from a big accounting firm with a BA degree from Michigan State University coming in being the uh, the dean. And so I had to go into a totally different context than I was used to and try to win uh, their acceptance. In the first faculty meeting, uh, I spoke and 
I saw that I wasn't uh, really uh, making headway, but at the end I said to them, uh, if we're going to be uh, the best, uh, we're going to have to have the best faculty. And if we're going to have the best faculty, we're going to have to pay them uh, at least equal to our competitors, Harvard and Stanford. And I've done a study, and you only make two-thirds as much as uh, they do, and I'm going to try to do something about that. I think that was the thing that clicked with them to say, well, uh, maybe this uh, fellow from the business world isn't all bad, and we should give him a chance and see how he uh, does. As far as a uh, situation where I think someone went into uh, uh, a different context and wasn't able to handle it was uh, Bob Nardelli. Uh, he was from GE, as you know. Uh, he went to Home Depot. Home Depot was a completely different culture, a family culture that had been built up over many uh, uh, years. And he tried to change that culture for whatever reason in very short uh, order. He brought in a lot of people from uh, uh, the outside. He treated the board differently than they had been treated in the past. Uh, uh, he got some good results, but as one analyst said, he alienated his stockholders, his board, and uh, uh, his employees. Well, he's on to a different job at Chrysler now, and I think that's uh, probably a little more akin to the environment he had at GE, although GE makes money, so we'll see how he does uh, there. In a top-down organization, including the ones you cited, like the airlines, automakers, defense contractors, certainly the military, uh, hospital operating rooms, what are the landmines that lie in wait for leaders? Well, I think in the top-down organization, it, uh, it, it tends to be a more autocratic organization, although there are many top-down organizations that have very fine leaders uh, that uh, don't hit the landmines. But in uh, companies like construction companies, the auto companies, airline companies, uh, where it's a do-it-and-do-it-now uh, uh, situation, the leaders sometimes have a tendency to remove themselves from the real world uh, around them. They don't, after a while, they don't listen as much. They uh, tend to think that they know all the answers. They often say to uh, people, we, we tried that four years ago and it didn't work. They become more insular. Uh, they don't get down to the lower levels and talk to the people who are making the day-to-day -day contact with customers uh, and others. And they have a tendency uh, often to hang on to their job uh, uh, too long. It's a, an exceptional situation where uh, someone should have a job for more than uh, uh, 10 years. So uh, particularly in top-down organizations, uh, this, this can be a problem. You were 37 when you took over as CEO of Touche Ross, the youngest person ever to attain that position in a Big 8, now Big 4, accounting firm. But these days, CEOs, presidents, and other top executives are often in their 20s. How much harder is it for young people to understand context-driven leadership when they have had so little experience outside of the firm they started or helped make successful? Well, you can be a leader at almost any particular uh, age, so the fact that they're in their 20s uh, uh, doesn't preclude them uh, from being uh, a leader. And many of these young people that uh, I've met are very fine leaders. They have good judgment. 
The thing that they lack, as in some cases, is uh, they haven't had the experience, uh, obviously. And some way this has to be supplemented uh, over some period of time so that they don't fall into the trap that uh, uh, many companies do. If you, if you go to buyout firms that are uh, buying out uh, companies that uh, are have been great companies, build up to a certain uh, uh, level, uh, and now uh, they don't have the leadership anymore. You'll 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 find that that is because the original owner uh, or founder hasn't broadened themselves to uh, do the kinds of things that we're talking uh, about uh, here. So I would say for these uh, young leaders, it's good to have some people around that have been through the fire, been through the wars, uh, that they can uh, have and and, uh, listen to who do understand uh, context. On the other hand, I would say that uh, one of the hallmarks of a leader is to be able to intuitively understand situations. And uh, you can do that as well at uh, 22 uh, uh, often as at uh, 37 or some other age. You relate the experience you had when you were a board member of Bankers Trust and suggested to the CEO that he form a small group to identify potential threats to the bank. Two potential problems were a crisis in the Japanese stock market and a crisis in the derivatives area. Ironically, both crises did come about, and the bank still had done nothing to prepare for them. Now we see the whole subprime mortgage mess in which banks and others failed to follow proper risk management procedures and ended up losing billions of dollars for investors. What prevented people from seeing and preparing for this outcome? Was it greed, arrogance, a herd mentality? Or is it just wishful thinking to hope that leaders who are making huge piles of money will stop and say, hey, wait a minute, let's set up a crisis contingency plan? I believe it's uh, number one, greed, and uh, number two, uh, everybody else is uh, doing it, so it must be a good thing. But uh, how could we possibly imagine uh, that what was uh, happening wasn't going to uh, be a calamity in the end. So we had people selling mortgages, uh, low-doc mortgages, no-doc uh, mortgages, come in and we'll give you a mortgage and we'll give you some uh, uh, money back. But uh, why could they get away with that? Because they had no risk. They sold somebody a mortgage or gave somebody a, a, a mortgage and then they sold it to somebody. Uh, at that point, they had no risk. The somebody they sold it to bundled these um, uh, mortgages and uh, sold them to somebody uh, else. And then we broadened it out and securitized in different forms uh, uh, these mortgages, and they kept passing uh, around. And only the last stop, uh, in many cases, was there any uh, uh, risk involved. But if anyone would step back they would know that this situation couldn't go uh, uh, on forever. Uh, And I think the herd uh, mentality, uh, that was the same herd mentality that said, well, uh, many years ago, we we know there's a law against parking stock, but everybody knows that everybody does it. Well, then a few people went to uh, prison and people didn't think that uh, anymore. Not everybody uh, joined this herd mentality. Uh, T. Rule Price uh, got out uh, early on. They had a chief financial officer, I believe she was, who, who said, uh, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, 
if anybody else would have looked at it, they would have uh, said uh, the same thing. Uh, you talked a few minutes ago about the your first Wharton faculty meeting, which was an example of understanding the self-interest of your constituents. But isn't the constituent self-interest often at odds with what the organization needs or can afford? Yes. And it's your job to bridge uh, their goals with your goals. Uh, and an example of that is... Uh, we had students at uh, Wharton, and we had something uh, that we called a plan for preeminence, and the students didn't really seem uh, uh, too interested uh, uh, in it because <clears throat> what had happened, uh, they had given up a high-paying job. Uh, they were paying high tuition. Uh, they were foregoing two years of uh, uh, their salary. They were coming to Wharton to uh, get an even better job and make lots of uh, money, and they had uh, very little interest in something that some dean called uh, a plan for preeminence. We, we constantly and consistently told them or suggested to them that the plan for preeminence was very important to them that for the rest of their life, people were going to be saying, where did you go to school? And they were either going to say something like Wharton or Harvard or, or uh, Stanford, and people were going to be fairly impressed, at least initially, uh, uh, and that uh, was going to help them uh, get jobs. That would uh, help them open uh, doors. It would help them in innumerable ways. So it was in their interest uh, that they help us make Wharton the best uh, business school uh, in the United States. Uh, once, once we convinced them of that, and once they could see that, uh, they uh, jumped in and helped us uh, implement the uh, plan for preeminence. So we bridged our goals, the plan for preeminence, with their goals, which I've already d described, and uh, moved forward. During your tenure as head of Touche Ross, you write about how you saw an opportunity to expand into the Middle East, specifically by establishing a relationship with Saba and Company, the main accounting firm in that area. As you recount in the book, a chief reason that Saba ended up joining with you was that you and three others from Touche Ross actually went to their offices in Beirut to meet with the top partners. Most other Americans at that time were choosing a safer place to meet where bombs weren't going off and buildings weren't getting blown up. But these days, everyone travels almost everywhere, and most companies know that they must staff their offices abroad with local leaders, etc. So what kinds of competitive advantages are there for leaders seeking business abroad from the perspective of the context-driven approach to leadership? Find out what their goals and needs and desires are and help them fulfill them. It's one thing to say, uh, we want to sell you something or we want to buy something uh, from you. That's, that's a simple business uh, uh, transaction. But it won't forge the kind of relationships that you need in today's uh, uh, world, uh, our flat world, uh, you know, in, in, uh, with businesses and multiple uh, companies. So in addition to doing business with them, you can find out, uh, do they need uh, certain types of, of training that in 
in your organization uh, you have, or you can be helpful in uh, uh, training, and maybe they can be helpful to uh, your organization. Uh, technologies, you can share uh, certain uh, technologies, marketing expertise. So I'm saying be more than a supplier or a customer. Uh, be someone who has an interest in their business and uh, do your best to help them achieve their goals. You also talk about the need every few years or so to kind of reseed or repot yourself, sort of make sure that you get new challenges, whether it's in the same organization or in a totally new organization. Do you still believe that? And, and about how often should people consider finding these new challenges? And how do you ensure that they'll actually be available to you? Well, I, I, I do believe it. I mean, uh, 10 years is a long time uh, uh, to uh, be in a job. I was uh, uh, the CEO of uh, Touche Ross, now Deloitte & Touche, uh, for 10 years. Uh, we had 400 offices uh, in uh, 90 countries. I traveled uh constantly uh, over uh, 200 uh, 200,000 uh, miles uh, a year and after 10 years uh, number one you get worn down a little uh, and and number two what's new you're doing the same things you've had the same uh, experiences uh, you've been to the same restaurant in Paris uh, when you met with the head of the Paris firm and and uh, you need to repot yourself. John Gardner wrote a great book on uh, renewal. I think that uh, everybody should uh, read that uh, book. Uh, so yes, I think that uh, you need to reinvigorate yourself, get your blood moving, and going into a new challenge is a great way to do that. Uh, conversely, if you stay too long, it's not a good thing, and and uh, there are very few leaders that can stay in a job 15 or, or uh, 20 years and not having a lot of people thinking, well, when, when are they going to go? It would really be good for the organization. You say the ultimate pitfall is hubris. Is that a personality trait, or is it something leaders inevitably pick up once they get in positions of power and start believing they're invincible? And how do you recognize that you've become so ego-driven that you're no longer effective and, in fact, could be dangerous? Well, it's something that's picked up. I mean, you weren't born with it, and you probably didn't learn it early on, but you got yourself into a situation that everybody uh, came into your big corner office, told you basically, uh, and many times, uh, what, uh, what you wanted uh, to hear, uh, said uh, that was a great speech you gave, even though uh, they knew somebody else wrote it for you. Uh, that was a great article that uh, uh, you uh, were in in the Wall Street uh, Journal. At cocktail parties, people always want to meet you and, and uh, say, this is so-and-so, the head of such-and-such. Uh, so after a while, you start believing your own press clippings. Uh, uh, and again, as I mentioned earlier, you have a tendency to stop listening. You have a tendency to have all the answers, not only to your business, 
to everything. I mean, you know about global warming and Iraq and AIDS and uh, uh, so forth and so on, and you can go to a cocktail party and pontificate, and as long as someone doesn't know too much about the uh, subject, they might be uh, impressed. You have more and more meetings to tell people how it's going to be, and you have less and less meetings to talk to people about how it, it should be. You don't really have town halls anymore with your employees because you just know that uh, uh, you're going to go out there and because they don't know the facts, they're going to start bitching about a bunch of stuff and you just don't want to hear that uh, uh, anymore. And in your your last act, you uh, have a big reorganization and put out a new corporate manual and that's just about the end of you. <laughs> You talk about how in times of crisis, a leader has, often has to make difficult decisions without consensus and even without explanation. But since it's almost always preferable to work with your team and to communicate well with everyone, how do you decide that the crisis is so great or so unique that it warrants this kind of go-it-alone approach? You determine that because you have great judgment. Uh, leading a crisis is your job. Uh, it's not anyone else's job in the organization. You don't have an office that you delegate this large crisis to. Uh, you are the leader, and you take charge in a crisis situation, and you know it's a crisis because your judgment tells you that this is a real crisis. And I just uh, uh, add that uh, there's been a controversy for ever on whether leadership can be taught. Leadership can be taught to, to a point. Uh, leadership can be learned through experience. Uh, but you can't make uh, a person a great leader if, for instance, they don't have judgment and judgment can't be taught. Judgment can be matured through uh, experience and that's why, uh, even though we don't like to think about this sometimes, uh, there has to be a selection process. And in that selection process, a very heavy factor is the judgment uh, of the individual. You know, I can, I can reiterate the, the story that I told in the book of the school that came that probably wanted to have me come and uh, lead their new business school. I asked them what the objective was. They said, well, the objective is to uh, train outstanding leaders. And then I said, well, how are you going to draw these? They were being drawn from the various parts of the other school. And they said, oh, anybody can get in. <laughs> and I said, well, how do you, how do you bridge those, those uh, two uh, things? Is, can everybody that, uh, from the other schools uh, be outstanding uh, leaders? And they said they were going to think about that. So anyway, judgment. Leading, uh, leading in crisis, uh, you, you will know it when it happens. Apart from your own experiences, you also draw upon the experiences of other leaders, one of whom is General P.X. Kelly, the former head of the Marine Corps. There's a story in your book about how he motivated one of his Marines. Can you tell us that story? Yes, he apparently, I, I can't remember if it was in... Um, uh, Vietnam, uh, but it was in, in uh, one of our war zones. Uh, and uh, he had a, a soldier that uh, they were telling him was, uh, was a malcontent and uh, was causing trouble. And 
uh, couldn't get with the program and so forth. And he called him in and he, and he uh, talked to him and uh, found out that he had a background in music and, and uh, particularly uh, the violin. And uh, the next time the uh, supply officer, that's the person that gets everything you need, no matter what they have to do and where they have to go uh, uh, to get it done, uh, he told him he wanted uh, a violin. And... and uh, uh, he got this violin, called this uh, soldier uh, in, Marine, I'm, we have to call them Marines, not soldiers, but uh, called the Marine in and said, uh, I have something uh, for you, um, turn your back to me, which he did, and he went up and he had this violin, and the Marine turned uh, around and the Marine uh, broke into tears. After that, uh, he played the violin. He was at uh, uh, some of the evening gatherings uh, uh, they had and became a totally different uh, soldier, a very productive uh, soldier, which again shows, and this mentions, uh, there's a section on this in the book, that non-rational means can be some of the best means of, of motivating people. We, we think about money uh, as the motivator or the bonus uh, as uh, the, bon- uh, the motivator. Uh, but the na- non-rational motivators are, are equally and sometimes uh, have greater impact than the traditional money bonus, et cetera, promotion type things. We, in American Education Centers, a large group of schools that... I owned, we had a uh, yearly uh, getaway called the President's uh, Club. The people worked all year long uh, to see if they could go to this. We went on cruises and different type things. I can, I can tell you that that was as important to our organi- organization and uh, in motivating people as, uh, as the bonus system uh, ever was. My last question is, what do you think is the most important lesson in your book that leaders and managers can draw? Well, the most Im- important is that integrity is the foundation of leadership. Uh, if there's one singular thing that's even more important than judgment, is that everyone around you believe that you're ultimately fair and honest and uh, believe in what you uh, say. I mean, I don't know how some of these politicians that were, that were uh, seen on television uh, can be a leader. I mean, uh, they're calling each other liars and uh, asking for apologies and, and uh, saying all kinds of uh, things. Uh, the leader has to have integrity that is above uh, reproach. And uh, I worry about that. I worry in today's world that some of our young people that are being turned out of Harvard and Wharton and Stanford and other fine business schools haven't totally learned that. Uh, that they, they think that the job is to get the transaction done, to get the edge on the transaction, to not let people know what uh, uh, they're really uh, thinking, to say things like, uh, uh, if you don't do that, I'm going to walk out of here. Well, they don't do that, and they don't walk out of there. 
I'm not saying all students. In fact, the um, great majority uh, have integrity, but but uh, we are fostering an environment in some places uh, on Wall Street and, and other places that say this is the way we do it and therefore it's right. Uh, so going back, uh, integrity is the foundation of uh, uh, leadership and I don't know how we uh, change our selection process for places like Wharton uh, to assure that uh, the people coming through the front door are of the highest integrity. Great. Thanks, Russ. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.